Good morning. Please have a seat. Please have a seat and <clears throat> please have a seat and please have an orange. Does anybody not have it? No, those are not. These are not for throwing at me. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Peters. Does anybody not have an orange? Miss Jen Hobson does not have an orange. Uh, and Kanai uh, uh, White does not have an orange. Mary doesn't have an orange. So, uh, so uh, while I'm uh, letting you know what's going on, please uh, go ahead and, and, and peel your orange. Um, and uh, if you don't have sharp fingernails, find somebody near you who does or uh, break out your key. The, we are starting a new series today. Mr. Peters, yes, you have a question? Is series going to be on like the layers of the earth? No. No, it's not. No. Uh, we, are, uh, we are starting a new series today, having completed our uh, Roman series. Uh, and uh, thanks, by the way, to uh, BJ uh, for hosting us last Sunday at her house for the, uh, the cookout to celebrate the end of that. Um, we are starting a new series today, uh, which is uh, titled HVAC Manuals. Um, Joe Miller is the one who conceived of this, and HVAC stands not as conventionally understood for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. HVAC here stands for Habits, Values, and Character. And uh, what Joe is doing is Joe, Joe is asking different leaders in the congregation to uh, share a manual that has been useful in their own development of HVAC, of Habits, Values, and Character, uh, whether it be a book or a piece of music or, or a movie or a, a work of art, and uh, he wanted to get me out of the way uh, so we can get to the good stuff. But the, the book that I immediately thought of was a book called The Supper of the Lamb, A Culinary Reflection by a man named Robert Farrar Capon. Who here has, has read uh, anything by Robert Farrar Capon? And who here has read The Supper of the Lamb? Good, okay, so Darcy and I are the only ones who've read so, what this means is there's a great deal of potential. Um, <clears throat> Capon uh, was an Episcopal priest. Uh, he died just a few years ago. Um, he uh, uh, basically uh, spent his career on Long Island, and um, he wrote a number of books of theology, but he also wrote a number of books on cooking. And uh, he, in fact, wrote for, I think it was the New Yorker and the New York Times, uh, wrote some articles on cooking uh, and uh, such for them. And this book is sort of both of those. This book is, uh, he calls it a culinary reflection. This is part cookbook, part theological meditation. Uh, feel free to eat your orange, by the way. Um, uh, sorry, <laughs> this isn't one of those things where, like, if you, eat, if you eat the marshmallow now, you get one, but if you wait 10 minutes, you get two. Um, so, uh, but, but in this, he, he, he is uh, he's offering recipes uh, but he's offering uh, theological meditation on, on what he's doing and really on the whole of the, the world that God's given us. And, and here in his introduction uh, is, is what he, why he says he's doing this. He, he says there's a habit that plagues many so-called spiritual minds. They imagine that matter and spirit are somehow at odds with each other and that the right course for human life is to escape from the world of matter into some finer and purer and undoubtedly duller realm. To me, that is a crashing mistake, and it is, above all, a theological mistake, because, in fact, 
It was God who invented dirt, onions, and turnip greens. God who invented human beings with their strange compulsion to cook their food. God who at the end of each day of creation pronounced a resounding good over his own concoctions. And it is God's unrelenting love of all the stuff of this world that keeps it in being at every moment. So if we're fascinated, even intoxicated by matter, it is no surprise we are made in the image of the ultimate materialist. And there's probably no better justification for this than the psalm we read this morning during our prayer. Psalm 104 is all about this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, how excellent is your greatness. You're clothed with majesty and splendor. How are you clothed in majesty and splendor? You're clothed in majesty and splendor by this creation you have made. Right? And the psalmist goes on lovingly to talk about the, the, the basic elements of wind and, and fire. He talks about the, the, the earth and the deep waters. He talks about the rock badger, which does have its place. I don't know why you all found that amusing. But the rock badger does have its place, and if you're going to be a, a good biblical inerrantist, you have to affirm that God made the stony cliffs for the rock badgers. Can I get a wet an amen? amen? Thank you. God appointed all of these things. He made grass grow for flocks and herds. He made plants to serve mankind, that they may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden our hearts, oil to make a cheerful countenance, and bread to strengthen the heart. In his book, Capon tells the story of a, uh, a, a, a dinner party, he kind of tells a parable of a dinner party where the, the host invites two guests that are, that are both single. One uh, is a widow who is despairing of the fact that she's only got beef, chicken, veal, and pork that she can cook. She just wishes somebody would create another animal because she's running out of animals to do things with. And then on the other hand, there's a, a guy who has absolutely no interest in, in food whatsoever. He would gladly su- survive on protein powder and water if he could, but Capon wrote this in 1967, so they didn't really have that all yet. And all the people at the dinner party are confused because they don't understand why this guy would, would invite to the same party, and because frankly he's trying to pair them off, this one person who has absolutely no interest in food and this other one who spends all her time wishing that she had something else to cook. And, and the reason, of course, he says, is that neither of them appreciates what they have been given. The woman who wants another animal has not even begun to explore all the possibilities that exist, all the different cuts of meat, all the, all the different ways you could prepare these different cuts, that he, he even kind of does some math and says if you just take a single, a single cut of, of beef, you, could, you really could, if, you, know, if you, you cook that once a week, you could get a different recipe out of that, and that's just one of those for a whole year. And he says that the two of them are, are utterly humorless, and they will go on having efficient little lives. And he said that their friends, the, the man's friends, rather than being curious, will thank him for making sure that they will 
not come to any more dinner parties, and they certainly won't throw any of their own. No, this is a glorious and beautiful and great world that God has created, and there is so much about it that is to be delighted in, that is to be enjoyed. And the idea, as the psalmist conveys, is that we enjoy these because they are God's gift to us. At my school this year, every, every day at lunch, we would, we would sing grace, and it comes out of this. We would sing the eye, I won't sing, the eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest to them their meat in due season. It's sort of the old school version of this psalm. Thou openest thine hand and fillest all things living with plenteousness. And then we would say, and bless, O Lord, these gifts to our use and us to thy service through Christ our Lord. Amen. These are good things that God has given us, these, this dirt and onions and turnip greens and these oranges. Just smell your hands right now. They, they smell better than they did five minutes ago, I bet. <laughs> It's one of the things that, that's so fun about having kids when they're little and you're trying to keep them amused in the backseat of the car and you keep, you know, peeling oranges for them. Your hands smell great all day. These are good things that God gives us to delight in. And it is God's whole idea that we would have them. Later on, Capon says that what God holds intimately and contemporaneously in being acts Nonetheless, for itself, the secular is not the sacred. Creation exists in its own right. It's not a parable. It's not a front. It's not a Punch and Judy show in which God plays all the parts, but it's a vast and raucous meeting where each thing acts out its nature, shouts out, I am I, as if no other thing had being. The world exists not for what it means, but for what it is. The purpose of mushrooms is to be mushrooms. Wine is in order to wine. Things are precious before they are contributory. It's a false piety that walks through creation, looking only for lessons that can be applied somewhere else. To be sure, God remains the greatest good, but for all that, the world is still good in itself. Indeed, since He does not need it, its whole reason for being must lie in its own goodness. He has no use for it, only delight. So just think what that means. We weren't made in God's image for nothing. The child's preference for sweets over spinach, mankind's universal love of the toothsome rather than the nutritious, is the mark of our greatness. It's the proof that we love the secular, the worldly, the ordinary, just as he does, for its secularity. We have eyes which see what he sees, lips which praise what he praises, and mouths which relish things because he first pronounced them good. The world is no disposable ladder to heaven. Earth is not convenient. It is good. It is by God's design our lawful love. And in using that word order, what Capon is referring to is that basic ethical idea that we are to love things in order to the, the proper way that they ought to be loved. We should love our children as 
you should love a child, not as you should love your dog. And you should love your dog as you love a dog, not as you love your child. Those loves which are out of order, those loves which are inordinate, are not in proportion. They're not in line with the way that they ought to be going on. And so what we are called to do, what God enables us to do as we allow His Spirit to work on us, is to love things as they ought to be loved, no more, no less. But Capon, of course, is writing in a time when there were plenty of people who were saying that the problem was we were loving these things too much. He says, no, the problem is you're not loving them enough. You're not loving them as they are. God loves these things. He made them. He made them for our good. He made them for our delight. He made them for our pleasure and for His own. He says further on that love is the widest, choicest door into the passion. God saved the world not by sitting up in heaven and issuing antiseptic directives, but by becoming man and vulnerable in Jesus. He died not because he despised the earth, but because he loved it as a man loves it, in a way out of all proportion and sense. And when he rose again, he stood up like a man indeed, with glorious scars and with flesh, bones, and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature. We've talked about this before, but we can't miss the fact that Jesus, when he rose again, did not rise as an apparition. He could pass through walls, which was pretty cool. But he was a real human being, a glorified human being. You could touch him. His disciples did. He ate a piece of fish. You can't, a ghost can't do that. But what God revealed to us in Jesus' resurrection, is, which is a foretaste of ours, is that our future is not that we're going to float around as a disembodied spirits on clouds wishing we'd brought a magazine, but that God is going at the resurrection to bring the new heavens and the new earth. And the new earth. And that our future will be one that is material that is glorified in its materiality, but that is material. It's not just spiritual. It's through that sacred humanity, Capon says, and through the mighty working whereby he's able to subdue all things to himself that he will, at the last day, change these corruptible bodies of ours, make them like his own glorious body, and through them draw all things into the last city of their being, The world will be lifted as it always was meant to be lifted by the priestly love of man. What Christ has done is to take our broken priesthood into His and make it strong again. We can, you see, take it with us. It will be precisely because we loved Jerusalem enough to bear it in our bones that its textures will ascend ascend when we rise. It will be because our eyes have relished the earth that the color of its countries will compel our hearts forever.
the bread and the wine, the pastry, the cheeses, the wine, and the songs go into the supper of the Lamb because we do. This world is a good and a beautiful thing, and the beauty and the goodness that, it, that we know now, that we can experience now, points to the greater beauty and the greater goodness of a world that is glorified and no longer under the curse. So thanks to Robert Farrar Capon, I can tell you that I have developed a habit. And it's a habit that some people I live with find annoying, which is that I, I will smell the wine that I'm drinking. And I will not just sort of smell it at first, but I will keep smelling it as I drink it. Pretty much anything I drink that's interesting. So if it's not like water or Diet Coke, I'm constantly going to be swirling it around and sticking my nose in and smelling it and, and, and just catching on to those different flavor components that are in there. I, I, I've done this with my children for as long as they would put up with it. In fact, it was really funny. The first time I did it with, with Alicia, I had this, this glass of, of beer, and, and uh, this was like we were, uh, it was in, in October, we were doing this uh, pumpkin carving thing, and, and, and uh, I had this pumpkin ale. And, and so I swirled around, I said, what do you smell? And she said, pumpkin. Of course, she knew that it was pumpkin ale, so it, that was kind of a, a gimme. Um, and then each time after that, for a while, I would say, what do you smell? Pumpkin. No, there's no, no pumpkin in that. Uh, but, but it's a delightful thing to, to, with gratitude, appreciate and delight in the bouquet of a simple glass of wine or a bourbon. And it is that virtue of gratitude that I think that habit is developing. It's a simple appreciation for what God has given us. And I, I really do think that I, I try to turn that, not just to luxuriating in something that's nice to smell, but, but this, is a, this is, in a sense, a, a spiritual discipline. This is a way of directing my attention to the good God that has given me these good things. Even if, from the next room, Mary says, what are you doing in there? <laughs> do you have a cold? No, no. And I think that the, the character that this has developed in, in me is, is that of being able to delight in God's good creation. And I think that what Capon's book and his other work has helped me to do is to, to understand better, more deeply, uh, in a theological sense, the relationship between those good things that God has given and the theological realities that uh, that are also real but in a different way, and, and not to denigrate one with respect to the other, but to, to be somebody who delights in God's creation and who delights in thinking about God and His creation. However, this is not without its risks. You will no doubt have floating around in your mind someplace what James says about our pleasures. Remember he says in chapter 4 that the conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Well, don't they come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you don't get it, so you commit murder. 
You covet something and you can't obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive. Why? Because ye ask amiss. You ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's for nothing, that the Scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit he's made to dwell in us. And because of this idea that we can't have friendship with the world because that's enmity toward God, you do get, I think, developed this tradition of viewing all material things and all pleasures as things to be avoided. You get the ascetic tradition. In, and I think there are people who are called to, to that as a, as a spiritual discipline, as a way of life, whether permanently or for a time. But what James is talking about here is, is not well-ordered loves and delights and pleasures. He's talking about inordinate pleasures. He's saying you want something that you can't have, and so you do whatever you need to do to get it. You want something that's more than or different than what God wants to give you. And Capon goes off on this too in his book where he talks about the, the uh, travesty of, of people buying fancy food that's pre-made and not very good when if they simply made a real honest loaf of bread, they would be much more delighted in that because it would be good and because it would be right. So yeah, I, I want to be somebody whose desires are well-ordered. But I have to confess, and it's not difficult to figure this out, that food is not something that I've always found easy to relate to well. <laughs> My own sins in the area of gluttony are not at all under control. I think one of the things that I hope is that Capon has helped me to appreciate the good gift of food that God has given us for what it is and to enable me to delight in it well and not to make of it an idol nor to deny its importance. But it's still something that I'm working on. And I should also offer the cautionary tale of Capon himself who, after 27 years of marriage, left his wife his own desires were not well-ordered in that regard. This year, I got a chance to meet a friend who, uh, or to talk to, a, reconnect with a, a friend who is a professor out on Long Island, and by chance, he shares a backyard with the priest who followed Father Capon in his congregation. And he had a far different impression of the man than what you would get as somebody who was a fan of his theological writings. He knew him as somebody who had nearly destroyed a church because he had started to not only teach but to practice free love in his own life and among those in his congregation. So this is not without potential danger.
and I have to take some issue with something that Capon says early on, and I confess that this orange idea is not original. Very early in his book, he says, peel an orange. Do it lovingly. Do it in perfect quarters like little boats or in staggered exfoliations like a flat map of the round world or in one long spiral as my grandfather used to do. Nothing's more likely to become garbage than an orange rind, but for long as anybody looks at it in delight, it stands a million triumphant miles from the trash heap. That, you know, is why the world exists at all. It remains outside the cosmic garbage can of nothingness, not because it's such a solemn necessity that nobody can get rid of it, but because it is the orange peel hung on God's chandelier, the wishbone in his kitchen closet. He likes it, therefore it stays. The whole marvelous collection of stones, skins, feathers, and string exists because at least one lover has never taken his eye off of it. As long as anyone looks at this orange peel in delight, Capon says, it stands a million triumphant miles from the trash heap. But the truth is, however long you want to look at this in delight, it will soon no longer be delightful. Already, it doesn't smell like much, does it? Smells fading from your fingers. Before long, this will start to rot. It will start to decay. It is good and it is a beautiful thing as it encloses the fruit of the orange. It's a very handy packaging that God worked out there. And it is, in its way, a good and beautiful thing in that it is pretty, in a sense. And it smells nice, or at least it did at first. But there soon will be nothing delightful about it. Whether you look at it in delight or not, it does soon belong on the trash heap. And if you are looking at it in delight when it belongs in the trash heap, there's something wrong with you. Your desires, your pleasures are disordered if you find trash delightful. And so I think part of having gratitude for the good creation that God has given us is to recognize its place, to delight in that which is good and wonderful when it's good and wonderful, but to know when it belongs somewhere outside of your eye, to know when it belongs in the trash heap. So accordingly, those same bowls that held those lovely oranges that came in will be available to you as you leave to put this in the trash. What's that? Okay. They'll be there so Chris can take them home and compost them. And they can do something else worthwhile and be delightful in some other way because that is the way that God has given us this good world. Let's pray. Lord God, you tell us that what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. We pray that we would always receive those gifts that you give us as we are to receive them, as we are to
hold them as long as we're supposed to hold them and give us the grace to know when they need to go. Make us people whose desires are well-ordered. Make us people who love well the things you call us to love. We pray that we would neither make gods of the things you've given us nor ignore the good gifts that come from your hand. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.